Why do so many people become professional nerds? You're about to find out as we sit down with author James Aquilone and discover that rock and roll is just too hard. Greetings and welcome to another brand new fresh out of the oven episode of the Nerd Byword Podcast, the only podcast that gets your nerd bacon sizzling every single week. We've got a special episode this week. We'll be speaking with author James Aquilone about his work on the Dead Jack series of novels, an upcoming tabletop RPG with Raven Desk Games, and his forthcoming comic book Man Bomb. But first, as is nerd by word tradition, we kick things off with some nerdy nerd news. Chris, what you got? Uh, John Boyega slams Star Wars and Disney. Uh, an interview with GQ, Boyega discussed the poor handling, in his opinion, um, of his character Finn and others. Um, quoting here from the article, But what I would say to Disney is do not bring out a black character, market them to be much more important in the franchise than they are, and then have them pushed to the side. It's not good. I'll say it straight up. Like, you guys knew what to do with Daisy Ridley. You knew what to do with Adam Driver. You knew what to do with these other people. But when it came to Kelly Marie Tran, when it came to John Boyega, you knew F all. So what do you want me to say? What are they? What they want you to say is, I enjoyed being a part of it. It was a great experience. Nah, nah, nah. I'll take that deal when it's a great experience. They gave all the nuance to Adam Driver, all the nuance to Daisy Ridley. Let's be honest. Daisy knows this. Adam knows this. Everybody knows. I'm not exposing anything. So essentially what he um, you know, is advocating for is all the characters of color and um, all of the characters who represent um, underrepresented groups of people uh, in, in Star Wars and in Hollywood at large are, are you know, you know, marketed as look at who we've cast here. And then when it came to the, comes to the storyline of these films, they're put on a shelf or they're put on, uh, you know, as I say, like a side quest. Now, I'm maybe, you know, in one camp and, and that I will fight for and defend The Last Jedi. I know that may be a controversial opinion in, in the nerd community. But one aspect I was not a fan of um, is, is Finn's storyline. Like, John Boyega is a fantastic actor and the character of Finn is such a compelling character. And then when you have like all this promotion, you know, leading up to uh, the Force Awakens of him ripping off uh, that Stormtrooper helmet, it's such an iconic part of that initial trailer when we first saw it. Um, and then you thought like, oh man, could we have a black guy being a Jedi? Uh, like, could we have like a, a Stormtrooper like resist all of that? So let's just like play this out here. You have a stormtrooper who has been brainwashed since birth and been conditioned to carry out all of the orders uh, and all of the strategies of the first order to be this, you know, machine, this robotic entity. He, he has the ability within him to resist that. You set it up beautifully. And now he wants to join the side of the resistance wants to join the good guys, if you will. Um, 
And then you have it hinted at in The Rise of Skywalker that he's Force-sensitive, but you don't confirm it. You have to deal with, like, the novelization or, like, exit interviews with, like, the cat or, or with the crew. You, you didn't just out there and say it. So think about the amazing storyline you could have had. Resist the brainwashing of being a stormtrooper. He's a Jedi. Like, what better story could you ask for than that and instead you have him on the side mission where he goes to space vegas um and then you also do the same thing with kelly marie tran who went through like the abuse and mistreatment that no human being i don't care if they're an actor i don't care what their occupation is the mistreatment and the abuse online that you went through no one should ever go through that no one especially someone as talented as kelly marie tran is as an actor um, and then you have, you know, everything that she went through after The Last Jedi to be jettisoned in Episode Nine, um, with like two scenes. And and this is probably just a, a a small microcosm of my feelings towards the ninth film, is I I felt like that entire movie was just an apology for The Last Jedi and and Kelly Marie Tran's limited exposure in that film, limited inclusion in that film. Uh, it's just a part of that. But uh, yeah, so John Boyega is is willing to say what no one else is willing to say. Uh, Dave, what are your thoughts on this? I'm actually really glad he's speaking out. I was reading this this article earlier today, and did Disney and Lucasfilm fail his character, Finn? Absolutely. He was by far one of the most interesting things about The Force Awakens. There was so much potential in his storyline. A stormtrooper who defects and the journey that he takes. No matter which way you want to take it, the story possibilities are endless. His arc of wanting to run away uh, in fear and then sticking around and finding his inner bravery was great. And then The Last Jedi basically repeated that same story arc. I mean, they, they took the same idea. At the beginning of the movie, there he is. He's wanting to run away again. He's afraid again. He doesn't want to stand and fight. And it takes another character to teach him the lesson he already learned in the previous movie. And then they completely sideline him in Rise of Skywalker. I mean, so screen time, certainly he's there. But he doesn't have an arc. There's nothing really going on with his character. There's no growth. There's no forward momentum. It's such a waste. A waste of an interesting character portrayed by a talented actor that ultimately is completely shoved aside. So nothing about Finn in my book was ever really resolved. Uh, When you go through... um, when you go through The Rise of Skywalker, there's a lot of hints that something's going on with him. He's trying to express something, but it's never, it doesn't reach any climax, no resolution. Is he Force-sensitive? Is that what he's trying to tell Rey? Is he, is he in love with her? Is there this romantic subplot that they decided to drop? We don't know. And it's really a crying shame. Finn's treatment is not by far the only failure of the sequel trilogy, but it's probably the most egregious, I think. And and really, Chris, I, I almost feel at the, like the time is quickly approaching where we are going to have to give the sequel trilogy the same treatment that we gave the prequels and maybe see if, if we can put our heads together and fix this mess. I totally agree with that. And the more that you know, I sit and contemplate on that, the more I agree that I'm, I'm ready to fix the sequel trilogy as well. Um, 
there are in in many many ways there there are a vast improvement over the prequels but in many many ways they repeat some of the same problems and i think we hinted at that in our prequel episodes but um you, you look at a character like finn and what that means and i know that there's a large portion uh, of the fandom of star wars that wants to cry sjw and wants to cry oh they're just forced inclusion and forced representation but those people are tone deaf and i'm not talking to those people what the people i'm talking to are are you know the young fans or fans of all ages that feel acknowledged and that feel um appreciated when you have adequate representation from you know minority groups um from you know different orientations um I, I know for myself, when my two biracial sons saw Finn on the screen, they were elated. And when they when we purchased um, Star Wars Battlefront 2, um, that was the first character that they chose to be. And then, you know, to see the mistreatment of this character on screen, I almost told them, don't watch the movie, guys. You're just going to be disappointed. You know, that's, that's really problematic. And I can't say enough about the bravery and just the appreciation for the authenticity of John Boyega. And I support him and I can't wait to support his work in the future. Um, I know that he and Daisy Ridley both have talked about uh, in, in interviews about struggling to find work after star Wars. And that's just a travesty um, because, you know, neither one of them need be blamed for, you know, the warts for these films because it's not, the acting that's the problem with these movies the acting is one of the strong suits um by all of the you know the main cast um oscar isaac is fantastic as poe dameron but there are parts where they shelve him in the same way um he has you know great features in in the last jedi but you know force awakens he's dead for 90 percent of the film um so you know another underutilized character and i i appreciate daisy Ridley's performance and Adam Driver, yes, they are both fantastic actors, but you have other fantastic actors on the, on this screen as well. So, um, so I, I I hope that you know John Boyega is able to find work, and and hopefully some of this is just part of the quarantine uh, COVID mess. But um, I I really appreciate him speaking out and and you know standing up for you know his truth. Yeah, if you don't mind, Chris, I actually want to pull on the scab for another second. I was, I'm sitting here thinking about this. And, yeah. you know, one of the things I think we need to realize is that they very consciously in the sequel trilogy try to construct sort of a big three again. You know, how you had in the original movies, the big three were Han, Leia, and Luke. And so they very consciously seem to try to, to imitate that by bringing in Rey, Finn, and Poe. Those are the big three. Now, if you if you kind of map the trajectories of those characters across the sequels and compare it to the trajectories of the big three in the original trilogy, you'll note that each character had an arc in each movie. Whereas in the sequel trilogy, it feels like both Poe and, and Finn, they don't really have a clear arc in each movie. In, in, in a couple of movies, they're a little more important, but there is no clear arc in each movie for each character. And, and I think that just comes straight down uh, at the feet of the writer, ultimately. 
they they made a poor choice. They had these main characters that are supposed to be the main focal point, and they didn't clearly think tr- through what each character's trajectory was supposed to be. I I think that's really the ultimate problem here. I I absolutely agree, and you know it. When you when you toss back and forth from J.J. Abrams to Ryan Johnson back to J.J. Abrams, who took over, um, you know, like it was almost like this executive oversight that I, oh, I'm going to take back, you know, episode nine and I'm going to come back and write this ship, so to speak. Um, and that's, you know, probably I've said this before. I, I feel like the, the biggest problem that I have with episode nine is that I feel like it's a two-and-a-half-hour apology for The Last Jedi, for, for what takes place in that film. And that one of the biggest problems with the sequel trilogy for me uh, is that there is no clear through line. And it's the same problem that I had with the prequel trilogy, in that you had 20-plus years to plan this out. How do you not have a clear three-film plan? This is the story that we want to tell with these characters. And I'll admit, like, one of the biggest criticisms of The Force Awakens, a movie that I truly enjoyed, um, was that it was too similar to A New Hope. And it was a little bit too on the nose. But you saw the direction that it was going, but then it just zigged and zagged everywhere else. So I totally agree with that. Um, and, and it was just very, very poor planning. And now we kind of... The, the, the most disheartening thing about it is, like, where do we go from here? We have, you know, stories that we love in the Star Wars property, like Mandalorian, which we'll get to in just a moment. We have, you know, series like The Clone Wars, which just wrapped up and was fantastic. Um, but where do we go from here? Um, I know that there's been talk of, you know, prequel prequels, but I don't know that that's the direction I want to go. Like, we're kind of just kind of stuck in this ooey-gooey mess that nobody's really happy with. Yeah, it's similar to Star Trek, really, in that it seems like so many of the Star Trek things in the main timeline, now ignoring the Kelvin timeline for a second, always seem to want to go backwards rather than forwards at this point. You know, first we had Enterprise taking place, you know, way before uh, the original series. Now you have Discovery, which also takes place before the original series. But... It's like we we left things in a place now with Star Wars where nobody wants to move forward anymore. Everything is looking backwards. I mean, even The Mandalorian takes place technically further back, you know, in in the Star Wars timeline. So, yeah, that's a great question. Where are we going from here with Star Wars? What does the future look like? Is there forward momentum left in this franchise? And that's a great question. Well, and I think it's it's I think it's counterproductive of the entire message of specifically star trek is is exploration and you know exploring new worlds strange new worlds and yet we i think for me and this is just a personal um viewpoint for me is to be careful with nostalgia um it it can be a very very powerful influence but sometimes it can be almost like a drug and that we get too caught up in the past and the glory days you know and there have been multiple studies where um, you know, remembrances, you remember an event and you remember like vacations or, um, you know, things better than what they actually were. Like they actually did surveys of, you remember when you went on this vacation and they, they, they asked the individuals like, oh, as you're on the vacation right now, 
well, how would you rate your happiness? And it was like a five or a six. It was okay. But then you ask them like months later, even years later, do you remember that vacation when you went to the beach? And oh, yeah, man, it was a nine or a 10. So I think we have to be super careful when it comes to nostalgia. And uh, we don't get too hung up in the past and continue to move forward. Yeah, I totally agree with that. But uh, we hinted at it a little bit. We're sticking with Star Wars. But uh, Dave, what's your news story for us this week? Well, I just want to take this opportunity to just talk about The Mandalorian for a second because we got some great news. The Mandalorian and the Child are about to return. StarWars.com reports that the second season of The Mandalorian will debut on October 30th on Disney+. Now, obviously, every episode of The Mandalorian Season 1 is available right now on Disney+. There's also Disney Gallery The Mandalorian, a behind-the-scenes look of the show. The Mandalorian is a fantastic show, was nominated for 15 Emmy Awards, including Outstanding Drama Series. Let's just say I'm psyched. Uh, I'm so pleased that this show is coming back. Star Wars output over the last few years has been pretty uneven. Uh, On the movie side, things were more uneven than others. On the TV side, you know, with The Clone Wars, uh, it has been much stronger in Rebels. And now The Mandalorian. And the first season of The Mandalorian was a complete joy. There isn't a whole lot known about season two so far, and that's how I like it. I went into season one blind, and I enjoyed every minute of it. I can't wait to repeat that experience. I I will say that just before this announcement, uh, just a few days before, I saw several posts on Twitter claiming to have inside information that Disney was not satisfied with season two and that reshoots and a delay would be announced soon. Instead, here we are. The Mandalorian is coming on October 30th, and once again, social media gave us much ado about nothing. Chris, what are your thoughts on The Mandalorian's return? Uh, it's it's the beacon of hope that I needed in this dark, dark world. It's something to look forward to, um, something that is actually going to take place uh, as scheduled. Um, I, I loved every every single moment of The Mandalorian. I, I couldn't wait. I, I referenced this, I think, in our interview with Brian Q. Miller. Um, but I couldn't wait. I would wake up at 5 o'clock every morning, every Friday, and watch the episode before I even like got ready for work. I could not wait. It, it's just... It, it's everything that we want as Star Wars fans. And it's it's the opposite of like reactions to the films. Everybody seemingly loved it. Like I, 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 you'd be very hard pressed to find someone who did not love it. Um, and I truly feel because like they have create a creative team behind this, this, this show and they let, let them cook, you know, with the pun intended with John Favreau and his experience in culinary, they let him cook. Um, when you have individuals like um, creator John Favreau and executive producer Dave Filoni, who you know, I I owe a lot in my Star Wars fandom and and like rekindling that fire after being disappointed with so many Star Wars productions, um, creating Ahsoka Tano, my personal favorite character in the universe, who hopefully we're going to see in season two. Like I'm I'm just super excited and. You know, I hope that they just, that Disney and Lucasfilm just let these two guys do what they do best. And I also appreciate, like, when they bring in directors and and other peoples for specific episodes, you know, and let them execute their vision. Uh, my main guy, Taika Waititi, did an episode that was just amazing. Um, 
uh, everybody that's been involved uh, is is just knocking it out of the park, and they're just letting these creative people tell the story that they wanted to do. It's kind of the opposite of what we just referenced in the sequel trilogy. They're letting these people tell their story, and it's not like this corporate you know overreach. So I'm super excited for this. Um, Din Djarin is a fantastic character. Pedro Pascal, I talked about him, and I gloated uh, about his work on, on the last episode of this show, but... Um, I'm I'm super excited to see where the story goes uh, from here. There's a lot of good acting going on in that show, a lot of good directing, a lot, and a lot of good writing, and and it goes to show uh, what the right creators with a clear vision can accomplish with a property, even a property as old and as well worn as Star Wars. The trick to keeping Star Wars alive, even just to go back, you know, to what we were talking about with uh, the earlier news story on John Boyega, the trick. To keeping Star Wars alive is to give it to the right creators that have a clear, consistent vision and are willing to execute that vision. I think that's ultimately what we need. Would you agree, Chris? Yeah, absolutely. And I, I you know, a lot of people call Favreau and Filoni like the Kevin Feige of, you know, Star Wars, or at least hopefully giving them that role, because I think one of the primary reasons that the MCU, the Marvel Cinematic uh, Cinematic Universe, is so successful is because you have an individual um, like Kevin Feige, who is kind of like the godfather, you know, the puppeteer pulling the strings all behind the scenes and just making making sure everything lines up. And, you know, there are certain drawbacks to that. You have, you know, uh, the situation with Ant-Man, Edgar Wright leaving the film because he didn't want to, like, get in line with the whole you know, connected universe of, of the Falcon cameo. And, and, you know, you're going to have drawbacks to that. And there are pros and cons to everything. But um, I think, you know, having, you know, a central vision and carrying that out, I, I think that's, you know, overall, I think that's very, very positive. Uh, I totally agree with that. Well, there you have our new segment. Coming up after the break, we're joined by author James Aquilone. So stick around. We'll be right back. Welcome back, nerds. We're joined today by author James Aquilone, writer of the Dead Jack series of novels filled with humor and the supernatural. He is kickstarting a tabletop RPG, Pandemonium Noir, in collaboration with Raven Desk Games. will soon release his third book in the Dead Jack series and is planning his first comic book work, Man Bomb. There's a lot to unpack here, so let's get to it. James, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. So, our very first episode of our podcast, uh, we featured our nerd origin stories. We kind of talked about what the nerdy influences were in our life. Uh, what sort of nerdy influences led you to become uh, an author uh, of comic books and, and novels? Well, I grew up in the 70s, so that was like prime time for nerds. You know, uh, I was right there in the beginning of Star Wars and uh, Superman the movie. Uh, TV was like Batman, uh, the 1966 series. So I was just inundated with that stuff, probably from like the age of three on. And I was really crazy about comic books. So that was probably what got me into writing and into superheroes and, and, and all those like science, science fiction and fantasy thing. Now, how did you get started in writing? And did you have any particular writers that were big influences for you? Um. You know, when I when I first started writing, I was wanting to write. I was probably in my 
mid-teens, and I wasn't necessarily then thinking about writing in like speculative fiction. I was really into uh, like like crime dramas, and uh, I kind of wanted to stay away from genre. I was kind of being like a literary snob, so I wouldn't read like Stephen King or um, or anything like that. So I would read like uh, James Joyce and Franz Kafka and um, and Shakespeare because I thought like that would be the way to go. That's what would make me a great writer. And uh, after a few years of that, it kind of was boring. And uh, I kind of went back to like genre. And my wife was a big fan of horror and she read a lot of Stephen King. So she kind of turned me onto that. And then I was like, oh, okay, this is fun. And this is cool. And uh, this is the type of stuff I want to write. That's fantastic. Uh, so we uh, read over the bio on your website, and there is something that kind of stuck out at us, and that is that you <laughs> mention a brief stint as a child model. And we simply <laughs> had to ask about that. It sounds like such an interesting story. What exactly <laughs> happened there? Well, uh, it was just basically one day. Uh, I think I was probably like four or five years old, and uh, I think they were having a fashion show thing at my sister's school. And uh, I was such a good-looking kid that um, whoever was putting the show on was like, uh, we want uh, him to model uh, like a bathing suit or something. And uh, I was forced to uh, put on a bathing suit and like walk around the uh, school gymnasium where all these like old ladies were like ogling me. And uh, <laughs> I have pictures of it. And I'm it was very uncomfortable. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, and then uh, I did not want to do that ever again. That sounds pretty traumatizing. <laughs> so your professional life has, has been quite a mixed bag. You also spent time as an alternative rock singer and guitarist. Uh, why did that not pan out for, like, the long term? You know, I was in college then. I got really into guitar playing, and I hooked up with bunch of friends this is like 1992 93 so this is all like you know when, when grunge was hitting and uh we did a couple of shows and uh we played the old lamore in uh, brooklyn and uh a couple of other uh, gigs um never made any money doing it and then it was just like the typical rock and roll band thing uh we had a falling out and uh the band broke up and uh, I moved. That's when I kind of was like, "All right, focus on writing." You know, rock and roll's too hard. <laughs> rock and roll's too hard. I love that. <laughs> <laughs> so, Dead Jack is such an interesting story and concept. There's so much going on with that. Where did the idea for that novel and and really the entire world of Pandemonium spawn from? I had launched a, a website. This is back in like 2005, 2006. And my main interest was wanting to do web, web comics. And uh, the first web comic I did was actually about uh, an exploding man, which is now going to be Man Bomb. That's my first comic. It's going to come out. We're going to do a Kickstarter next month. But I wanted to really do a web comic based on a detective. But I didn't want it to be like your standard type of detective story. I wanted it to be like a weird detective story so just thinking really of the ways to do that and there have already been i think uh like like robot detectives and and uh other stuff like that so i really like zombies so i thought my first thought actually when i say oh a zombie detective was like oh that's pretty stupid and i'm like how would that work 
And uh, that's what I was going for, though, just make it silly and fun. And then the webcomic didn't work out, so I just wrote a short story on it and uh, basically just filed it away in, like, 2006 and then figured that no one would be interested in it. And I didn't even think of trying to get it published. So I pretty much filed it away for about mm, about five years. And then, like, in 2011, I decided that I better try to really jumpstart my fiction writing career. And I took a uh, my first writing uh, fiction writing class, because I already had a degree in journalism and been working in journalism for, for years. But uh, I took the, the class, and then I, I, I submitted it for... Uh, they do like, like two stories that they critique and everyone flipped out for it. They go, this is great. And this is amazing. I would read this if this was a series. And, and I wasn't even meaning to, uh, I wasn't going to submit the dead Jack story. I was going to submit something else that I was writing, but I didn't finish it. So right before the deadline, I just was looking through my stuff and I put the dead Jack story in there. And I, I was really surprised by the reaction. And then I put it away again. And then uh, the next year, Weird Tales was looking for zombie stories. They were doing a zombie-themed issue. And I submitted it, and the editor at the time loved it, and I was surprised again and, and accepted it. And that was my first short story uh, acceptance. And then uh, everything pretty much took off after that, uh, after it being uh, published in Weird Tales. And then we did a Kickstarter. And then two months after the Kickstarter, uh, the series got options for movies and TV, and now uh, we're doing a game. So now the the publisher of, of Dead Jack is listed as Homunculus House. Is that a self publication, or is that a you know publishing company that you worked about? That's me. It's had a crazy history already. I I did the Kickstarter. I raised about fifty three hundred dollars. And I had every intention just to self-publish it because when I was writing it, my idea was that I'm just going to have fun with this and I'm just going to write it the way I want to write it. And I don't, I don't think any publisher would be interested in it. He's a, a zombie. He, uh, he drinks. He smokes. He's addicted to fairy dust. So I, I figured like publisher would, publishers would not like that. So I said, I'm just going to do this on my own. That way I can write it the way I want to and it could be just crazy. And uh, I self-published it. Uh, it did very well. It sold thousands of copies. But then I ended up getting an agent. And, of course, my agent then wanted to sell it to a publisher because at that time it already had been optioned. So after, like, about a year, we ended up getting a deal. And we got a two-book deal with a small publisher. And then they republished the first book, and then they were going to put out the second book. And it was a disaster. The small publisher just did not stick to their contract. They didn't do any promotion. They never even sent me like print copies of the book. And then they basically folded just a few months later. And uh, to, to this date, I never got any royalties. Uh, I never made a dime off of it. And we ended up selling an audio book while they, they had it. So they got half of the, uh, the, the, uh, the advance from the audiobook, They got a few thousand dollars from that and yet they paid me. So then I ended up getting my, my rights back and then I, I had to go and wait a few more months and then I had to self-publish it again. So then it, it's been published now three times. Wow. 
<laughs> yeah, that is that is something. W- would you say that um, self publishing is is sort of the the route to go for aspiring writers at this point? The entry level of of publishing yourself seems to be you know, so much lower these days. Do you think that's a better route for aspiring authors than trying to get with an actual publisher? I think for certain genres. I mean, uh, if you're going to write something like zombie fiction, it's definitely better to self-publish. Uh, I, I know a lot of uh, zombie authors uh, who do very well self-publishing. And a lot of publishers, big publishers and small publishers, won't, won't touch a, a zombie book. And they're, they're very against like uh, stuff like if you got a zombie book, if, if, if it's vampires, they, they just automatically reject it. So if you have something that's a very kind of classic subgenre, you're, you're definitely better off uh, self-publishing it. Because there's, there's, there's really big fandoms centered around those genres. And you'll do well. I mean, if you're doing like straight like literature, then you're probably best off you know, going after a big publisher or even even like a mid-list publisher. I mean, to self-publish, to be, to, to be successful, you, you really have to have a series. I mean, it's very hard then to market just a single book and then come out with another, you know, single book. But if you have a series and, and it has a very um, a strong fandom, like vampires, zombies, you, you can do very well. Well, and we referenced this in the intro, but now you're writing a tabletop RPG uh, based on the series called Pandemonium Noir. How is this any different of a writing process than, you know, writing a novel or a comic or something else? Or is it similar? Um, There's some similarities. I mean, it's very different because uh, you don't tell a full story. As I'm learning, uh, you have to really just give them elements to tell. They're basically telling the story. So you're just giving them the setting, you give them some plot points, and you try to you try to steer them in a certain way. But people playing the game can take it really anywhere. So it, it, my instinct as a writer is to tell the full story and, and, and to tell it my way. So with an RPG, you, you really can't do that. So you, you're giving them the tools to, to, to tell their own story or to, to explore the world. So it's, it's very different in that way. So you're basically like deconstructing your story. So that's something I'm learning because I'm not I'm not too familiar with with RPGs. So I'm I'm really in my my um, role is to really kind of just fill in like descriptions and stuff about the the characters and the settings. And um, Alex, uh, he's doing basically the you know the game mechanics and stuff. But we we collaborate on both. Now, now, pandemonium as a world, uh, from what I've read, sounds really interesting. Can you can you describe to our listeners a little bit what the setting for for this tabletop RPG actually is like? What it looks like? Well, pandemonium is a, an alternate dimension. Uh, it's kind of a mirror world to, to our world. Um, it, it takes place. I mean, in the book, it's more. It's the 1940s. It's, it's like post World War II. The games will will kind of stretch it into like the mid 50s but it has that noir feel about it. And we're really just focusing on one area of that world, which is like, which is the five boroughs, which is based on New York city. Uh, so basically there's, there are things that are analogous to the real world. So in uh, what, what would be pandemonium, New York city or Manhattan, 
there's a place called like the Empire Snake Building instead of the Empire State Building. And uh, Central Park is the Wood of Shadows. So all the real uh, landmarks in New York City are represented in the five boroughs of pandemonium, but they're a little bit off. But Coney Island is still Coney Island. In, in Brooklyn. <laughs> <laughs> Now, now, speaking of New York, you stated that Spider-Man was a supremely influential character, uh, and it doesn't get much more New York with the way of superheroes than Spidey. Uh, can you expound on that and why he's so important to you? When I was a kid, but the first superheroes I was really into were Batman and Superman. As I said before, the Batman TV show, the Adam West TV show, was, was always running, so that was my first love of superheroes. Then was Superman, the movie, came out in 1978, and I was crazy about that. But then when I started reading Spider-Man comics, it was a whole different thing because I really identified with Peter Parker where you can't really identify with Superman or um, Batman. But Peter Parker was a nerd, and Peter Parker had no friends, and, and Peter Parker was just like everybody else. And I was like, wow, <laughs> you know? And that kind of blew my mind as, as probably like six years old. And then I think whenever I'd be down as a kid, I'd be like, but Peter Parker, he's also Superman, uh, Spider-Man. And, and that, was, that meant something to me. And that was probably the first time reading that I really connected with a character. Now, as somebody who's, you know, read comic books uh, as a child growing up, who is now uh, doing his first comic book work with, with Man Bomb, what to you makes comic books such a special medium in comparison to something like movies and TV or even uh, just uh, uh, prose writing? What makes comic books special, do you think? Yeah, there's something very special about comics that I think just like, really excite me, just even holding them and just flipping through them. It's, it's, that, it's that combination of the art and the text. I mean, I love that. I mean, even as a kid, I just loved magazines and newspapers, just seeing text and, and, and images. I thought it was so great. I mean, that's what is kind of crappy nowadays with websites and, and all that print media is going away because it's it, just something about that that just really spoke to me. And there's, there's something about comics that I don't think any other medium can really um, do. And uh, I, that's why I was like, I have to do a comic book. I know I've done novel short stories and i'll even do an rpg but it's like i have to do a comic book and I, it might not be great but like your career because they tell you you have to stay in like one like medium and you have to stay in one genre so now i'm going into a whole different genre whole different medium and uh but i don't care i mean <laughs> i just want to do a comic book <laughs> be super cool just to have a comic book and to hold it and uh you know just to see it like in a comic book so it would be would be awesome now, we've kicked it around a little bit throughout the interview, but uh, Man Bomb is the comic that you're hoping to kickstart in October. Um, but take us a little bit deeper. What's it all about? Um, do you have an artist attached? Uh, just tell us a little bit more about that. So Man Bomb, he's a human bomb. Uh, but he doesn't really, he can't really control his explosions. So uh, he gets upset, he can explode. He gets excited, he can explode. Uh, so I, I also, so I really was thinking about what would it be like if you were a human bomb in like a post nine 11 world, it would probably not be really good for you. So you, 
there would be a lot of uh, issues. And uh, that's where the idea came from. And then I just kind of started expanding on that. Like I said, it was, it was a webcomic back in 2006, and I did about eight issues or eight, eight, eight comics. And I always wanted to bring it back. And now I kind of expanded the story. So it'll be, well, basically the bad guy is a, uh, is a guy running for president. And uh, well, it, it involves all kind of conspiracy theories. And uh, basically, Man Bomb gets, um, he's, he's, he's blamed for like blowing up his superhero team. And then the rest of the comic is him trying to, uh, it, it, trying to escape the, the the evil presidential candidate and uh, and not get arrested and and not blow everybody out. <laughs> that that's really fascinating. One one of the things that I've noticed about the the Dead Jack series is that it has a really strong sense of humor. Are you going for a similar tone with Man Bomb? This this sort of uh, fast talking, smart alecky sort of approach, or or is this something a little different for you? It'll definitely have the humor. Um, the man bomb character is probably not as snarky as Dead Jack. He's probably a little bit more timid. So, so in that, it's different. But it, 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 yeah, if you if you're a fan of Dead Jack, you'd like this too because it, it is in the same type of tone. But they're, they're definitely different characters. Now, how could people uh, contribute to make uh, Pandemonium Noir and, and Man Bomb a reality? How can they keep track of you and your work? You can go to deadjack.com. Um, you can find me on, I'm, you know, I'm Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. You can also go to jamesapalone.com. All right, that's fantastic. Now, we're also going to go ahead and include the link to the uh, Kickstarter uh, in our show notes to make sure that our listeners can find the Kickstarter to Pandemonium Noir. Thank you so much, James, for uh, taking the time for the interview. We really appreciate you. Thanks for having me. It was a lot of fun. Thanks so much. Stick around, folks, because after the break, we are bringing you some new nerd commendations. Alrighty, folks. Thanks for sticking around. Uh, now it's time for our final segment of the show, which is, of course, Nerd Commendations, where we recommend new nerdy media that you might enjoy. Chris, what is your Nerd Commendation for this week? Well, I'm throwing it back about 10 years um, on a show you might not have heard of or you've forgotten how much you love it. And I'm going with an animated show uh, that's streaming on Disney Plus right now called uh, Avengers, The Earth's Mightiest Heroes. Um, this is just a great show. What I appreciate about it the most is like it doesn't dumb it down to like a kid's level. So like people of all ages can enjoy this. Um and you know how I am when it comes to theme songs, and, and this has one of the best. Um, it's really rocking. Um, it's super catchy. It, get, it grabs your attention. One of those things where you run to the screen whenever you hear it. Um, other thing that I really, really appreciate about this show is that it seemed uh, pretty faithful to like the source material on the comics, or, or at least as close as you can be. Um and like it has some really great writing on it. Um, the storylines with um, Kang the Conqueror um, going back and forth in timelines is super super interesting. 
Um, the first couple of episodes are basically like the first four episodes are basically like um, an origin story for each of the main characters. So it's really great, uh, really interesting. Um, the voice acting is is fantastic. You have Eric Loomis as Iron Man. You have Colleen O'Shaughnessy as Janet Van Dyne, the Wasp. Um, Brian Bloom as Captain America. Uh, Rick Wasserman as Thor. Uh, Chris Cox as as Hawkeye and Fred uh, Tatashiori as the Hulk. Um, I also really, really appreciated um, the inclusion of T'Challa, the Black Panther. And this was way before um, the MCU inclusion of the character. So it really prepped me to get super, super excited about that. Um, and, and, you know, the, the great thing about this cast is um, it's pretty, you know, the, the, the makeup of the team is pretty true to the original Avengers comics from the the 60s. You've got, um, you know, Hank Pym and Janet Van Dyne being part of the team as well. So I, I really, really appreciated that. Um, it's just a really, really fun show. Um, and I enjoyed it a lot and I highly recommend it. You know, it's funny because I was completely unaware of the series. I mean, completely. I knew there was an animated series that somewhat tied in with the MCU, but this even predates that series, which I think is called Avengers Assemble. Yes. So Yeah, so I'm very curious. Uh, in terms of tone and roster, it sounds more like classic Avengers stuff. Yeah, more Stan Lee than Bendis or MCU. For somebody who knows the Avengers primarily from the NC- MCU like I do, uh, can somebody like me still enjoy the series even though it's a little more classic, a little more old school? Yeah, I think so, because like I said, they take the first four or five episodes doing like origin stories. So um, like some of these characters may be new to you, but they tell like the backstory of everybody. So it's it's pretty new viewer friendly, if you will. Fantastic. That's great. Well, then I'll definitely try to check that out. All right, Dave, you're taking us somewhere that I did not expect. You're taking us to the Boneyard. What's going on? Hey, my my shelf of comic books is about as eclectic as it gets. And by now, our audience knows that I love the stuff that flies under the radar, the stuff that has loyal fans but never quite hit the mainstream. And I think my recommendation this time fits that mold to the T. So Boneyard is a fantasy humor comic book that was published quarterly between uh, 2001 and 2009 by NBM, and was both written and drawn by Richard Moore. The book actually won the 2005 Gold Medal for All Ages graphic novels from Forward Magazine. In the book, the character Michael Paris inherits a plot of land in the town of Raven Hollow. When he gets there, he finds that this plot of land is actually a graveyard, and it has some rather alive uh, residents. Uh, A vampire, a demon, a sea creature, a witch a Frankenstein's monster-like creature, and more. And because of all these monsters living there, the townsfolk are trying to burn the place to the ground. But there's also other forces at work here. And in this story, it turns out the monsters are actually the good guys. This book is so much fun. The humor is spot on. It spoofs, but it also respects horror and its cliches. The writing is incredibly witty, and Richard Moore's art just sings. There's also a really great slow burn relationship between Paris and the vampire Abby that is really a joy to watch as it slowly unfolds. There's there's a, a strong romantic undertone in there that keeps rearing its head and works surprisingly well in conjunction with the humor. 
This has stood as one of my favorite comic books for years. I ran into it quite by accident and I still frequently revisit the story because it's just such a delight. Now the book was originally published in black and white but there were also some colorized trades that have been put out since the original run ended. The book was collect uh, collected across seven trade paperbacks and although it never got quite got a proper resolution to all of its story threads, there is a somewhat satisfying end that definitely makes the journey worth it. Uh, we'll include a link to the first volume in our show notes, uh, but I will say it's just a lot of fun. If you're looking for a comic book to just kick back and, and enjoy the, the joy of it, the 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 humor and just the pure fun. This is just the perfect under the radar book to read. Yeah, this looks. I'm I'm just looking up the cast list, uh, the residents of the Boneyard on the Wikipedia page, and it looks super fascinating. Uh, uh, Nessie's character description, especially, is, is standing out to say the least. Um, <laughs> that's not the only thing that stands out about Nessie. <laughs> but yeah, I'm super intrigued to read this. Um, I've, I've always been a fan, you know, we're, we're big history nerds, you and I both. Like, you know, I signed up for free courses on Cor- uh, Coursera just to study old ancient history that I've already taken classes for, just for kicks. That's what I do in my free time. But like, you know, seeing all these, you know, monsters that have been, you know, woven throughout mythology and throughout history is super, super exciting to me. Oh, oh my God. They have a talking raven named Edgar. I'm in. <laughs> yeah, I figured you might really enjoy this one. Um, I, I, I want to say also that I, I'm not sure if the last couple of volumes were ever colorized. So um, if you really enjoy the color versions, you might have to switch to black and white towards the end of the run. But trust me, the art is so good and the story is so much fun. I don't think that even matters at this point. All right, that wraps up another episode of the Nerd Byword podcast. Thanks so much for joining us. Uh, uh, Stay glued to your podcast feeds every Monday morning. We're going to be gracing you with another episode. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, uh, and our website, nerdbyword.com. Um, if you did catch us on social media um, at nerdbyword on Instagram, we had a, a really, really cool announcement. Um, we're, we're doing a cross-promotion uh, incentive where you record the intro to our show. Usually when we have like a guest um, join us, they'll say, hey, this is blotty, blotty, blah, blah, blah author of blah 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 and then you know you're listening to the nerd by word so if you have like um you know clothing company if you have a nerdy website that you want to feature on the show uh record a 10 to 15 second clip of your show uh, uh for our show and then uh email that to nerdbyword at gmail.com Yes, and we're really excited to feature your intros. I think that this is going to be a lot of fun, and we're really looking forward to that. Uh, don't be strangers on social media. Uh, we've been having quite a bit of fun there, not just with cross promotions, just interacting with our uh, fans of the podcast. Feel free to tweet at us with some questions or comments. Uh, we'll be more than glad to interact with you there. And we're always looking for suggestions for interesting new comic books or other nerdy media to read ourselves. Uh, you never know, one of those might actually made a, make a nerd commendation. Thanks so much, guys. Stay well and stay nerdy. 
The Nerd Byword is written and produced by Chris and Dave, two nerds with a love of all things pop culture. The podcast features music by Al Jimenez and show art by Ashery Design. Find us at nerdbyword.com and wherever podcasts are available. <laughs>